hear traumatic tuner. This screen needs to behave. Can you tune with the capo on here? Aaron? That's not what Evan told me. I feel like I'm being told different things. All right. Good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone. Good to come and worship the Lord together. A few announcements as we get started. Uh, just very quickly, last week we made the kind of quick announcement that the bathroom to the left of me was out of commission for the day. It is fixed, so both restrooms are fully functional. Um, so you may use e either one of them this week. Um, also, we've been talking about for a while switching over to the app Discord as our, uh, as, as our church-based digital community platform. Um, we've been using Realm, and it's worked for us, but we've had a lot of issues with it. It's just generally not done what we had really hoped that it would. Um, so the general consensus amongst the church body is, hey, Discord works better. A lot of folks individually and then groups were already using it, um, and so we made the decision to switch over to Discord. We really feel like that's going to do a much better job of just giving us that digital sense of community and be, being able to stay in contact with one another, doing a better job than the Realm app. So um, Jake is going to post a link on Realm for us in order to go and uh, get connected up with the Discord app. You can go to wherever you get your apps um, and download just Discord, Discord app, um, and then uh, Jake will have that link there. Missional community leaders, if you you're already, many of you, I think most are already using it. Um, if you have folks in your group or people that you, don't, that you know of, send invites to them. 
uh, to get connected up. So we'll do this uh, for probably about a month. You know, we'll keep both apps running, and then somewhere in the middle of October, we'll phase out the Realm app. So just kind of giving everybody a, keeping everybody aware of that. If you have questions, see Jake Elliott in the back. So he's our master media tech and all things ones and zeros. <laughs> all right. Um, also, you may or may not have noticed um, we have a new set of chairs. Uh, we've been talking about purchasing new chairs just to give more seating. Um, and all the chairs over here are brand new. They look very much like the existing chairs, which was kind of the goal. Um, so that has worked well. I want to thank Nathan for really spearheading that and putting that together, receiving those chairs. Uh, so a big thank you to, to him for, for getting all that together. Thank you for those individuals and families who donated money to help purchase the chairs. We're great, very grateful for that as well. So we, we now have more seating capacity than what we had, which was a goal. We wanted to be able to fill this space uh, with worshipers of the Lord as we gather every Sunday, and we're able to do that. All right. Uh, also, just a, uh, a, a note on this, and I apologize, we didn't bring this to, to use the church uh, sooner, um, but the band has been needing um, some additional equipment, some in-ear microphones that, uh, that allows specific, and here's where I'm going to lose myself, so I'm going to do my best to kind of describe this. I'm not, I love music. I'm not a music guy, so I'm the wrong person to fully make this announcement, but I'm going to do my best. Those microphones allow the individual band members to hear what they need in order to deliver the quality of music that we need. That's as, that's as good as I can get, okay? Um, so we have purchased those we have purchased the equipment necessary to do that, uh, to you know, in in order for the band members to have those. That came in at a price tag of about five hundred dollars net that the church was ultimately going to be responsible for. Um, but we had to do that rather quickly because the equipment is on back order. Um, so just giving everyone a heads up, you know, we have made that purchase. If anybody has any questions or have any issues about that, see me or Alan. We're happy to discuss that with you uh, in, in more detail. But just want to let you know that we've made that purchase as a church. All right, a few things on our, oh, one other thing. Um, Natalie mentioned last week uh, about these prayer maps from the uh, everyhomeforchrist.org. Um, just wanted to remind you that if you're interested in praying for the world at large, these have every, uh, every country basically numbered um, with specifics to, on how to pray for the countries, um, dates, very, very helpful tool just for praying for our world at large. So if you're interested in this or, you know, this is something you say, hey, I want to do this individually or as a family, these maps are sitting over here on the blue top table. There's one for children as well as far as how to introduce children into praying globally uh, for the kingdom of God to come and for the gospel uh, to permeate these areas. All right, a few things on our calendar. So this afternoon... At from 4.30 to 5.30, our young girls' Bible study will uh, continue to meet. They met for the first time last week. I think most folks got their books, or, you know, that was kind of the introduction. So this, uh, this afternoon, uh, young ladies, y'all will read chapter one of the book, uh, A Girl After God's Own Heart. So y'all will meet here, 4.30 to 5.30, all right? Uh, and again, books are $10. Uh, y'all can pay Miss Heather or Miss Sarah uh, at any point uh, during the study for those. Um, all right, women's meeting, that'll be this evening at 6.30, correct? 6 or 6.30? 6, 6.30. Um, be this evening, 6.30. Um, in the book, ladies, y'all are going through, that'll be chapter 9 for y'all. Um, this Thursday, there'll be a, um, a prayer to end abortion that's sponsored by the Personhood uh, Organization and the Shoulders, our, uh, our, our local 
captains of that, is that right? Local captains uh, for the personhood organization. Um, so if you're interested in that, that's going to be a, that's open to the community at large. But we as Haven Ridge said, hey, we, we want to help sponsor, provide a location for that because the Shoulders were looking for a place where they could host that. We said, hey, we're happy to, to provide that space. Um, so that's open to the community at large. You know, absolutely, you know, anyone who's interested would like to come and just spend time in prayer for praying to end abortion at large. That's going to be this Thursday at 6 p.m. Is that right? I have it down. Let me find it. 6 p.m. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> Let's make sure nothing changed. So, again, Thursday evening, 6 p.m. here at the church building. Okay? Uh, men's camp out, that'll be Friday, October the 1st. Um, that'll be at the Groves home. Um, this is something we do every every year in the fall. Men of the church, we get together. We sit around a campfire. We hang out, enjoy each other's company. Uh, some of the guys will stay, you know, for a few hours fellowship and then go home, sleep in nice warm beds, and then the rest of us are crazy, and we sleep out in hammocks and tents and then get up in the morning and, you know, cook breakfast there. So, But it's our annual men's camp out. That will be October the 1st and 2nd. That's a Friday, Saturday uh, at the Groves home. There will be a, a, some, a time of cleanup um, at the Groves, down by the, uh, down by the creek uh, at the Groves home the week before, just because things grow up there, <laughs> you know, over, over the course of a year. So Travis will spend time doing that. Anybody who's interested in helping, you know, we'll, we'll send messages out about opportunities to help do cleanup and uh, just kind of get the, the area ready for us. Uh, but go ahead and mark your calendars for that. That is a free event. Uh, there's no, no cost involved in there. All right. Uh, also, October the 10th is going to be just a church-wide youth brainstorming um, meeting. So if you're interested in what does the discipleship of our children as they reach that teenage uh, age look like as, as more of our younger children reach that stage, this is something we've been talking about for quite a while. We've tried to get some things going, and it's, it's been hard to get traction. A big part of that is just the small number of, of, uh, of youth teenagers that we've had. But as we have more children within the church that are reaching that stage, we're trying to figure out, okay, what is that going to look like for us at Haven Ridge? So we have a brainstorming meeting uh, just to kind of kick ideas around and to then discuss what is this going to look like, um, you know, for us at Haven Ridge to not only equip the young children, these te- to equip our teenagers for life in the world, you know, ministry for, uh, for being faithful Christians, but also to help equip parents to be the primary disciple makers, okay? So, again, October the 10th uh, at, at 6.30, that's going to be here at the church, bu- uh, church building. All right, I think that's it. Did I miss anything? No? All right. Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of First Kings. First Kings chapter 8, verse 8. Let me give a little context here. Solomon has built the temple of the Lord, and he's in the process. He's moving the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. Remember beforehand, the Ark was tabernacled. It was in a temporary housing. And every time the people of God would move, the Ark would move. And then they would set the tabernacle up, and then the Ark would go inside. And so it was a beacon of hope. Uh, for for the fam- for the people of God for the, for Israel as they traveled, okay, and then in the Promised Land it was the sign of God's glory, and here the temple was made the permanent location of the Ark. God you know gives the conscription for how to build it. Here's everything you need to know. The workers engaged in it. The temple was built, and then the Ark was moved into its permanent location where it would be, and no one would see it except the high priest who would go in once a year. 
And here in verse 8, we find something very interesting that the Lord preserves for us. 1 Kings 8, 8. When the, when the tabernacle was brought into its place, it said, but the poles were so long, these are the poles that they carried the ark on. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside, and they're there to this day. Let's pray. Father God, I can't help but think that when they sat the ark, that beacon of hope and God's glory for his people, and they set it inside the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, and those, pole, those poles stuck through the, the curtain that some people were saying, thinking, did God make a mistake? Was, it, was there an error here in the size of the room or, or something? And yet they kept it. Say, no, God didn't make a mistake. And over the years, I can't help but think that here was a, here was a sign of hope for the people. As the priests would come in, they couldn't see beyond the veil, couldn't see the glory of God. But those poles stuck through, saying, he's still here, he's still with us. Father, let's move into the new covenant. And you've, you've been pleased to give us that the light of the glory of, of Christ would shine in our hearts through the gospel, that we know it when Christ was crucified that the veil was torn in two, that the way to God was made open and available through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we'd be a new creation now. And yet as we're faithful Christians and we come and we gather this morning, I know so many we are frustrated it seems like there's still a veil there. The kingdom of God hasn't broken through. Praise God, Father, that you give us your spirit. That if we're watchful, we'll see your fingerprints. We see as those poles stuck through the veil in the Old Testament, Father, we see the hands of Christ coming through the darkness of our own world. It gives us hope affirms for us as believers that you're still here, you're still present, you're still with us, you haven't left us. As those priests gathered and would come into the inner sanctuary, find hope. Lord, we gather here as your church where you have said, if we're two or more gathered in your name, there you will be also. And Father, we gather this morning in your name to worship you. And so Father, would you pull back the curtains this morning as we worship you that we might see Christ the weak and the frail would be reinvigorated, would be strengthened in faith as we worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And stand together, please.
Why don't you come up and join Pastor Austin? Good morning. Hey, everybody. There I am. Ta da. Everybody good? 
All right. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Jesus returns, okay, when Jesus, that Jesus comes back, okay? So his first coming, his second coming, yeah, that was a big, that was a big thing, okay? It was very important. So we talked about that last week. So now I want to talk about something else that's sort of tied to that, okay? Okay, and this is a, this is a, a, a big thought, okay? All of these are big thoughts. But this one is, what happens when someone dies, okay? How many of you have have had somebody in your family pass away, someone die, or maybe even lost a, a pet, okay? Yep, sooner or later, we've ex- you know, you'll experience that if you haven't already, okay? And that's a, that's a sad time, isn't it? It's very sad, right? Because when someone passes away, that's a permanent thing, right? They're no, they're no longer here, right? We don't, we don't get the, the pleasure of sitting in their company, enjoying their time with them. They're, they're gone, and it's a very, very sad very sad time, but it's a, it's a reality. Is it? And the question kind of becomes, well, what happens when a person dies? Well, I'll tell you, what the Bible says about what happens when a person dies is that there's not a stopping. Life happens when a person dies. Okay, it's, a, it's as if when you stepped in through that door, where were you beforehand? Home. Okay, you were home, but you were also outside, right? Right, right before you came in, you were outside. And then you step through that door, and you were here. You were inside. Okay? When death happens, the way the Bible speaks of it is that it is, it's, like a, it's like a passing from, from one to another. Okay? Life here to what, what then becomes our final life. Okay? Or eternal life. Okay? And so it, it's what happens at death is, is the next life, basically, okay? But there's a separation that occurs. There, there's a separation. When, when someone dies, their physical part stays here. But their inner life, who they are on the inside, okay, that's what lives on. Okay, we might call that their soul or their spirit. Okay, so there's that, there's that separation that occurs, okay? And in waiting for when Christ returns and he, and he brings new life, he he gives a new body, okay? There's the resurrection that, that occurs, okay? So there's that separation that, that happens. Well, what about what do we experience after death? What do, what do we experience? Well, the Bible talks of two different experiences, okay? For, and, and these are tied to Jesus, okay? And this, again, this is why Jesus matters so much. This is why we make such a big deal about Jesus in the church, okay? For those who trust in Jesus, who put their hope in him, the Bible speaks of that when our next life, as we, st- as we step through the door of death, and we step, what we step into is we step into the Lord's presence. And there's joy and there's blessing, right? Okay, if you remember, when we talked about God and his character, okay, this was months ago. I know you guys have phenomenal memories, and you remember all of that, okay? But for your parents' sake, I'm going to kind of review this a little bit, okay? Because our parents, we don't remember stuff very well, right? Right? Don't know. That's a safe answer. <laughs> okay. Remember, we talked about God and that God is the source of all things good. Right? He's the source of all things good. And so anything we experience that's good in this life, okay, it's a gift from the Lord. Right? That's a gift from God. And so to step into his presence, to be with him, then is to, be, is to experience all things good and all things joyful. Okay? And there's a lot of scriptures that talk about that. Okay? I don't have time to go to those. Right, but there's a lot of the things talk, that, that talk about when that that all things in the presence of the Lord are good and joyful, okay, and that we experience those. So, so for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, 
Death is moving into the presence of the Lord to experience joy, to experience blessings, and to be with others who also have put their faith in Christ, okay, who've been made new through Jesus. Okay, but for those who don't trust in Jesus, there's a separation from God, right? If God is the source of all things good, okay, all things good, then, then death, the life that follows death is a separation from all things good. That's sad, isn't it? That's sad. Okay, it's a separation from all those things good, but it's also suffering. It's also suffering. There's punishment that, that comes on for that brokenness. We talked about that before, about the, the, the punishment for our sins, right, is, is death, and the life that follows is eternal punishment. There's a story that Jesus tells Okay, in the book of Luke, Jesus tells this story to an audience, okay? And he talks about there was a rich man and there was a poor man, okay? And the rich man, he had all of his, he had all of his richness, he had all of his things, and he trusted in himself, okay? He trusted in himself. He thought, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. God looks at me. I've got all of these blessings. I've got all these possessions. I've got a bunch of camels. I've got a bunch of money. I've got a bunch of big house, all the walls and everything. I'm doing good. God's blessing me. I'm in favor with God. And then there was a poor man. There was a poor man who was very sick. He was ill, and he used to sit outside the gates of the rich man and beg for food. But the rich man paid him no attention. And the poor man put his hope in God. But the rich man didn't. The rich man thought he was in God's favor, but he was putting his hope in himself. And Jesus tells the story. He says that both men died. And this is what he says. He says, the poor man died and was carried to the, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, that's another word for hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, he received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. He said, besides this, between you and us, there's a great chasm that has been fixed. Okay, chasm's like a canyon. Okay, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who pass, that that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to do so, and none may cross from here to there. Okay, that's kind of an eye-opening story, right? Okay, but Jesus is making a point. He's making a point about the importance of who we trust in while we're here. And that at the point of death, what our life looks like beyond that is fixed. Okay? That point of that chasm means that once we pass through that doorway, it doesn't change. It's fixed. Right? That experience is fixed. And so Jesus makes the point that for those who don't trust in Christ... Right, there's, a, there's a punishment that's there. There's a separation that happens from all things good, which is God himself. But for those who trust in Jesus, they step into his presence, into presence of all things joyful, all things righteous, and all things good. Right? You know that Paul, Paul spoke a lot about this. He spoke to the Corinthians, and he says, you know what? We have courage. He said, while we live this life here, we're at home in the body, but we're away from the Lord. But we have courage because we would rather be at home with the Lord than away from the body. When he talks about away from the body, that's what he's talking about, death. And he longed for that. He says, I'm not afraid of death because I know that the moment I close my eyes in death, I step in the presence of God. 
And I long to be in that presence because it, this, the Bible says that his right hand is fullness of joy. He, told, he wrote to the Philippians and he says, he says, no, I'm torn. I'm really torn. Do I stay here and minister to you and experience the sufferings that I'm going through and the struggles? Or do I, do I go to be with the Lord? He says, he, says, he says, dying is gain for me. Dying is gain. It's like, it's like Christmas. He says, it's better to be with the Lord. He says, but I'm going to remain here as long as God has me to, to serve you. To live out and be faithful to what the Lord has called me to until he calls me home. Okay? He says that departing to be with Jesus is better. All right, let me give you, let me give you an example. Okay, this may be, this may be helpful for, for some of you. I know, I know kind of some of your stories. Okay, so maybe this is helpful. How many of you have had a really hard day at school? One time. You've had a hard day at school or something? Okay, really hard day. Just test didn't go well. Somebody made fun of you. You were teased. You fell down. You got a boo-boo. It was just a really horrible, very bad day, right? And then you get ready to come home, right? You might come home, and you're like, home is such a welcome to you, right? Home is welcome. It's like, I love to be home. It's safe. It's comfortable. There's good things here. Maybe you come in and, and you're crying. There's tears in your, in your eyes. Yes. yes. It's like, yes. I'm home, right? Yes. It's like, yes, I'm home. Right? And mommy or daddy comes to meet you. And you're like, what's wrong? You like, I pour out your heart. It's, it's just, you know, I had this tough, hard day. It's really bad. And they put their arms around you. It's comfort. Right? I'm home. This is a picture of what death looks like for the Christian, right? As you, you close your eyes in death, you step through that door, you pass through those waters, and you open in, your arm, in the arms of Christ. You're in the arms of Christ. It's good. Paul says it's better, right? But God's called us to a work here, right? He's called us to a work here to be faithful while we're here until he calls us home. But you know, Jesus has a warning also for those who don't put their faith in, in Christ, all right, he, he wrote to a, to a group who were listening to him while he was preaching on the mountain. And he says, you know, there will be many in that day when they pass through those waters, when they close their eyes in death, you know, who put their, their hope in themselves. And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. He says, I never, I never knew you. This isn't your home because you didn't know me. So here's the final point, okay? Now listen, I want all you guys to look at me, okay? Death is a fixed, it's a, it's a certain thing, right? But for Christians, it shouldn't be something that we're afraid of, okay? It's a certain thing, okay? But, and life that continues on is a certain thing. But what is not certain is which direction you will go. That all depends on where you put your hope. This is why we, we, we hear, we make such a big deal about Jesus, because Jesus told, he told us, he said, there is no other name under heaven by which someone would be saved, by which someone at the end of their life would enter into my presence and experience fullness of joy. Is that helpful? Does that make sense? That's a big idea. It's a big idea, but I hope that it's helpful. All right, let me pray for us. Thank you guys, and you guys can be dismissed to go with Miss Leslie to go to your class, okay? My Father God, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Father. These are, these are big ideas, big thoughts. They're hard for Hard for us as adults to wrap our minds around. They're sad. They're sobering. But Father, you've 
You've given us hope. You've given us the gospel. You've given us Jesus. You've given us the promise of eternal life with you. And we're not told what, what all those things will look like. We don't know what all the rooms in your house will look like. We don't know what we'll have there. But we know that you'll be there. We know that if we have, our, if we have faith in Christ, we put our trust in him. We close our eyes in death. We'll open them and see Jesus. Be comforted and have joy. To Father, pray for these young minds this morning. Lord, you'd help them see their need for Christ. They would put their hope in Jesus and follow them all the rest of the days of their life that you have given to them. Father, may parents be faithful and grandparents be faithful and us as a church body be faithful to disciple our children, to point them to Jesus always so that we, so that they may know Christ, they may have hope in him, but also, Father, so that when it comes our time to close our eyes, that our own children, our own grandchildren would not have a question about who we put our hope in, where we go. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, y'all can be dismissed. Y'all, let's stay with us for two more songs.
Pour out our praise, it's your breath and 
before Alan comes to pray or comes to preach, let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, that is our cry this morning. That it is your breath in our lungs. If we stand here today and we know Jesus, Father, that we are saved not by a seed which is perishable, but that which is imperishable. The abiding word of God. The gospel that came to us. Not through our hands, not through our feet, not through anything that we did. But through our ears, the the most awkward organ that we have. And not even by our own intelligence did we figure it out. But by your grace alone were our eyes open to the gift of Jesus and his preciousness. And we... We valued Him. We appropriated Him. We put our faith in Christ. The the long burden curse that had plagued us for so long was lifted. We celebrate You this morning, Father. We celebrate Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work that He's done on the cross. We celebrate Your Spirit, whom You give as a seal of the new covenant that's within us. And we don't stand here to claim to be perfect. We claim to follow Christ and seek to follow You and to honor You wherever You have us, wherever You have us planted in, whatever profession we're in, whatever stage of life we're in, whoever we're connected with, Father. We pledge to be faithful to Jesus and to try and represent Him well to be salt and light in the world around us. So, Father, as we gather this morning and we worship you, know that other brothers and sisters are doing this across the world in contexts very different than our own, some under threat of life and persecution, some having been evacuated from little small home churches and perhaps are out in the woods meeting together hopefully worshiping or perhaps even in private because that's all they're able to. So, Father, pray that you would strengthen your saints this morning across the world. And, Father, for the faithful missionaries who are continuing diligently in the work of sharing the gospel, ministering, being the hands and feet of Jesus, keep them faithful to the task at hand. Father, specifically for our missionaries who are in China and Bangladesh, Ireland, other parts of the world, Father, whether they are there present physically now or whether they are are here in the state and longing to be back, keep them faithful to the task at hand. Now, Father, as Alan comes and bring your word, would you give him clarity, give him passion, Help him to rightly divide your word before us that we might feast on it. That you might bring conviction where it's needed, perhaps even to bring someone to faith in Christ for the first time. That, Father, in our midst, you might be glorified by being made much of in our hearts and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. I think I'm, okay, there we go, yeah. Galatians chapter 3, 
We'll look at verses 6 through 14 today. So we missed being here last week. We were, we were, uh, we were quarantined to the house. Yeah, because of, uh, because of Wesley's diagnosis of COVID-19. And so we were following protocol, as many of you have done, as many of you will end up doing, especially if you have your kids in, uh, in school around other kids. And it is what it is right now. But we miss being here. There's something about gathering together with the saints. And so being back today is a, uh, is a, is a, is a delight for me. And uh, so Galatians chapter 3. I will say this. The struggle of homeschooling is very real. You know, I am not a, I know I'm a teacher of the word, and I'm aspiring to grow in that, but I am not a teacher of the math, and I'm not a teacher of the social studies, and I'm not a teacher of the science, but I try to be. Now, <laughs> they give the, they, they, a lot of the stuff is hard copy, and a lot of the stuff is you have to go online, you have to go to Google, your Google Meet, Google whatever the thing is that, that the kids go to, and they're supposed to go through all of these things. So I'm in my room trying to write a sermon, trying to work on stuff, and my lovely daughter, she comes in and she says, Daddy, she gave us this assignment, but it's not right. Why is it not right? Well, it doesn't have the information in it that she says I'm supposed to look for. I said, how so? Well, for example, Daddy, I'm supposed to look for what a delta is. She gave me the wrong worksheet. Church, it took me three seconds to find the word delta and its definition. And I just want to share that example because that was par for the entire course of the last two weeks in mine and my wife's life. Okay, so when I'm at home homeschooling, I am so much more grateful for you teachers who are in there dealing with these little humans <laughs> that are so confident that they know that you're wrong as a teacher. But... <laughs> But three seconds worth of investigating shows that, oh, this time they were, they, were, they were okay. They were right. So I won't call you all by name, but I'm going to scan through and see all the teachers and say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for not kicking my kid in the head, okay? <laughs> because I know that that's the temptation sometimes, all right? I understand that. Uh, but we, I am so glad that they're going back tomorrow. And if you teach my child... And my child sniffles, ignore it, okay? If the child next to my child sniffles, ignore it. Or at least move my kid outside or something and talk to them through the window so they don't have to come back home and be quarantined again. So I know that that sounds really selfish, and we're doing our duty as, as parents when our kids are home and working through those things, but I'm just not cut from that cloth, okay? When God said, this is what being a parent is, I missed some of the memo, all right? So... Um, Thank you, teachers. I'll, I'll say it that way. Uh, anyway, so back to uh, Galatians chapter 3. So we've gone through a lot of things as we look through Galatians. We've worked through what justification by faith alone is with a particular emphasis on justification. The, the forensic term that it is, the legal declaration of being declared right before God. Again, you are not intrinsically right or good. It is not innate within you that you are right and good. It is something that has to be applied to you, something that has to cover you. Okay, so you're given a new identity. A part of that identity is this righteousness that you get exclusively through the gospel and its application. All right, so we talked about that. And so I wouldn't call that low-hanging fruit. That is, 
that is critical to understanding Christianity because it is it is the the uh, part of the key, a part of the key construct of what Christianity is as it pertains to the gospel. So we can't get that wrong, justification. So we talked about imputation. We talked about how justification and how righteousness comes about through imputation, how something is added to your account where amputation is something that is taken away. Paul is saying to these Gentile believers, listen, you don't have to follow a law in order to be right. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be right. You don't have to do works in order to be right in the eyes of God. God's standard is something much loftier than an occasional law-keeping moment from you or by you. His standard is holiness and perfection, and Jesus achieved that and applied that to you so that you could have his righteousness when standing before God. So Christ applied his righteousness to your empty empty, empty, bankrupt account. Okay, so we've gone through those things. And I wouldn't call that low-hanging fruit. I would call that some weighty, meaty stuff that we have to chew on. But today, I do believe, is some low-hanging fruit. Maybe a, a moment where we can have a bit of a reprieve and think through something else that's, uh, that's, that's going to be very commonplace for all of us. But I want to take a few moments to investigate it just a little bit more. Because there are, I know two sides to a coin, but if there were three and four, there's another side to this justification and righteousness, and that is faith. We talk about justification by faith alone. We highlighted justification, but we didn't so much highlight the faith aspect of that. So today we're going to talk about the necessity of faith, because that is exactly what Paul does. Paul labors to make this argument he uses a biblical theological approach even to show them that their hope their confidence all that is rooted in faith but faith is something that was given to them faith is something that god and his grace has provided for them so here's what we're going to look at and i think there's some pretty simple application at the end of this so here's my objective today to examine the role of faith as it pertains to our relationship to and with God. And the way I've outlined this is a little bit different today. I've got two outlines, kind of. Uh, you can just call it multiple points, whatever. But I'm going to first walk through this text. And then after that, I want to take a moment just to explain some things about faith. Faith, things that are very biblical about faith, things that we can arrive at through the text and get to faith. But I want to first deal with what the text is actually saying and then build on that looking at a greater, the greater uh, content of, of Scripture. So let me read this text for you. Galatians chapter 3. We'll go ahead and start with verse 6. I know that Austin covered that, but we're going to delve a little bit into that as well. Abraham believed God, Paul says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, by the way, there's going to be a statement that Paul's going to make later in Galatians chapter 6. He's going to speak of the Israel of God. I'm going to get more into that later. So if you're sitting there wondering, you know, okay, so are we going to get into some of this stuff about who Israel is and all this fun stuff? We will take time to get into all that stuff in Galatians chapter 6. I could get to it from here, but you get a bigger picture and I think a, a, a better picture by the time we get to chapter 6. So hang on tight. Not everyone will agree probably, but we will go through that together. Okay, so... Anyway, he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's kind of weird. Saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. For the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise, the promised spirit through faith. All right, so there's a lot, and it can be kind of confusing reading all of this. We've dealt with justification. We've dealt with righteousness. We've dealt with imputation. We've even dealt with the law to a degree. There's going to be more of that on the horizon, but right now we're not going to go back into those things. I'm trusting that what I've taught so far, I know not everybody was here for that, when we went through the law aspect as it pertains to justification, as it pertains to our relationship to God, I'm building on that. This is more cumulative in my approach rather than rehashing all those things. So if that's at all confusing or you're looking for some context or some background, I just encourage you to go listen to previous sermons covering those texts or I'll send you my notes or whatever so that you can have a better context of, what's, of what Paul's talking about when we go through this law stuff. So I find this interesting, and I think it's, uh, I think it's just a, a great example of, of, of how to make proper appeals when you're trying to convince someone of what truth is. Keep in mind, this context, again, this is a salvation of works versus a salvation by grace through faith. Paul arrives on the scene where he writes to, to deal with this issue because, again, these Judaizers, these people from James, it said, had come in and they're teaching, ah, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to go through this and that. So they're kind of inserting this idea of works into salvation. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're not, that's, that's not what you heard. That's not what I taught you. That's not the gospel you believed. He even goes so far as to say, in fact, you're leaving the one who had called you by his grace and you're going to another gospel. So Paul's very bold in saying what they're teaching you, this works-based issue, is not just, is not just the true gospel with some, some added flavor, albeit bad flavor to it. It's a completely false gospel. And that's important, okay? So Paul deals with this issue. And so keep in mind, that's the context. We're still dealing with that. And that helps us to understand this a little bit better. So Paul appeals in several different ways to several different points of time and history to build his argument for salvation by faith alone. Faith is the singular basis for salvation is what Paul is saying. And he begins by appealing to Abraham. And there's no coincidence that he would appeal to Abraham. Because the Jews considered their father to be Abraham. They're leaning. Their hope, all these things. They're saying, yeah, well, yeah, well, there's these covenants that were made. And we're still keeping the covenant. You know, if you go to uh, Genesis chapter 17, you know, you've got the covenant of circumcision that's given. They're leaning on that. They're saying, yeah, we do put our hope in Abraham and all of these things. So Paul would appeal to the very same source that they would appeal to for hope. And they're going straight to Abraham. So Paul does the same thing. But he does so to show them that they're thinking 
incorrectly about Abraham because Abraham did what? Believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And right out of the gate, that's what he's got to say to them. And I just want you to know how this might land on a, on, on a Judaizer. You know, for him to come up and say, and I know he's speaking to the Galatians, to the Gentile believers, but what they're told is, uh, is from the influence of the Jews, of the Judaizers. He's saying, listen, yes, your father is Abraham. That is abso- so absolutely right. God did make this covenant. God reached down to a pagan nation, to a pagan people, to a pagan person, raised him up, made him new, and then marked him and said, now you're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to establish my covenant with you, and I'm going to bless you, and all the families of the earth, it says, will be blessed. And so he's right to appeal to Abraham. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Jesus even dealt with this in John chapter 8. Listen to this. This is just to show you the Jews' default mode when it comes to Abraham. So Jesus said to the Jews, this is in John chapter 8. This is after the, uh, the woman caught in adultery was recorded in the text there. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But they answered him in this way. and said, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever, Jesus says. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you what you have heard from your father. And they answered him saying, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. We understand that Jesus would go on to say, you are of your father, the devil. So the father that Jesus was talking about, or at least applying to them, was not Abraham. While he does admit, you are the offspring. You are the descendants of Abraham. You are of that nationality. You are, in fact, an Israelite. You are, in fact, a Jew. But in the sense that you need Abraham to be your father, he is not. But they believed that. And so they appealed to circumcision. They appealed to law because it was... Through all of this, once Abraham was appointed, that all these things were given. So he appeals first to Abraham. And then he appeals not just to Abraham, but the covenant or the promise that was made with Abraham. Now you see this kind of unfold in several different chapters. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Okay, You see this, this, this promise, this land promise, this people promise, this blessing promise. And you see all of these things kind of come together beginning with Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17. And Paul appeals to this. Listen, he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations, and this is the reference to that promise, in you, this is God speaking, shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed 
along with Abraham, the man of faith. What you see being turned over and over is faith, faith, faith. This is his argument. This is his appeal. He goes to Abraham. Abraham believed, first of all, counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes to what God said. He appeals to the covenant, to the promise with Abraham, which is filled with faith language, or, or which ultimately would be. But, but he says, like, this is the promise. You get all of these things. You get all of these blessings. You get all of this because Abraham first had faith. And so too, like Abraham, in order to be blessed, you must have faith in order to have these blessings. God made this covenant with Abraham. He said, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Of course, that means all the families that trust and follow God. Because it said, in Abraham, in you, all these families will be blessed. Paul appeals to the promises because they are being fulfilled in the first century context, just as they were being being fulfilled today. As God continues to bring people to life and salvation. The blessing that you have is because I believe that you become a part of that promise that's being fulfilled. As we're all being grafted in, all of these things that are taking place. And this is exactly the argument that he has for them. He's like, look, you're a part of this. And this is how you figure in. You are blessed as you are grafted in. You are blessed as you follow and trust the gospel. Ultimately, as you trust and follow God. So he appeals to a promise, he appeals to a covenant, and then Paul appeals to a curse. Listen to this. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Abraham was, in fact, the father of many nations. But he goes here, sorry, he goes here, he appeals to this curse. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, by the way. It says, cursed is anyone who does not uphold the works of this law by carrying them out. We've already talked about the law and its effect. We've talked about what the law does. Paul even mentioned the fact that he died to the law. Because what the law does is it shows you your guilt. It shows you your shame. It shows you that you can't meet the standard. It shows you that you need someone who can. It shows you that you need someone to step in place who can fulfill, who can meet all the standards and all the demands of the law. And so Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He said, the life I lived in the flesh is gone. I died to the law. That which condemned me no longer condemns me because now I'm in Christ. So we've already talked about what the law does and what Paul said with regards to the law. No one can keep the law. The point Paul is making is that everyone who would be, everyone would be cursed if law-keeping was the basis for salvation. Again, he's making this appeal that it's faith. It's faith. It's faith. It, all, it always has been faith. It's faith. The children of Abraham are blessed. Why? For the same reason Abraham was blessed. Faith. We find these blessings in God because of faith. Thirdly, he appeals to an Old Testament prophet. Interestingly, we go to John because we've we've walked through John already and took us a few years, right? And now we go to Habakkuk. 
Paul appeals to the words of Habakkuk when he says these words. He says, listen, the righteous shall live by faith. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That is from the prophet Habakkuk. Again, if you want some context there, we preach a sermon series on that, and you can go and see that. But the righteous shall live by faith. This faith, this means that the, this means, that the means to righteousness is through faith. It's easy to arrive at this text, say the righteous shall live by faith, and think that that means, well, if we are the righteous, then we'll be faithful. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. If you are righteous, you have Christ's righteousness, the evidence of that justification, the evidence of that rightness is that you will be faithful in the way that you live. But as far as the way this context is concerned, Paul is not appealing to them and talking about what sanctification looks like. He's talking about salvation. He's saying, look, the Habakkuk said the righteous shall live by faith. The means to righteousness, the means to actual life is faith. This is, this is exactly what he's been going through for verses 6 through 14. It does not mean that the righteous will have faith. We know that they certainly will. That's not what he means here in this text. Paul's argument is to be regenerated is to be justified. To be justified is to be declared legally righteous. Only those of faith will ever receive justification. These things cannot be divorced from one another. So there's an appeal to this Old Testament prophet. There's an appeal to Habakkuk's word when he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, he's just building his argument. He's showing them over and over and over again, working through Scripture, showing you know, from the covenant to the, to, the, to the prophet who spoke these words. I'm showing you. It's not about your law-keeping. It's not about your circumcision. It's not about your good in school. It's not about your good grades. It's not about whether you cuss or not. It's not about whether you drink or not. It's not about any of these things. It's about faith. And then genuine faith yields certain results. Genuine faith has certain and specific byproducts. And he appeals to the prophet. And then finally he appeals to the gospel itself. He appeals to the gospel itself. Listen to what he says. He speaks of this curse of the law when he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And now he speaks of a different curse. And he says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he appeals to the gospel. I mean, he ends this argument by saying, hey, Christ did these things so that we might be this and we might receive this. What? Through what? Faith. So you can't deny the role that faith plays. You can't deny that Paul's appealing to these moments, the gospel, prophets, uh, to the prophets, to the covenants, to Abraham himself, to argue. I mean, there's, a, there's an entire chapter of the Bible written on faith, on, on, on faithful men, these faithful men, these heroes of the faith. So there's a, there's, a, there's a highlighted section of the Bible where it's articulated the necessity of this faith and how, how monumentally important it is. But we see that cursed is him who hangs on a tree. We know that that was Jesus. Jesus hung on the tree. That was on, Jesus becomes the curse that was on our heads 
for not meeting the demands of the law. Therefore, it takes work for salvation off the table. And now what's on the table is clearly faith. That's what's on the table. That's what Jesus did by becoming a curse. So he appeals to the gospel. Simply put, he says, look, I can't make it any clearer to you. You, Jesus did the work. All you have to have is faith. Because you understand that if it was the works that were demanded, you would never make it. Faith. So that's the four appeals that he makes. He appeals to Abraham. He appeals to the promise and the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, 17. He appeals to Habakkuk, and then he appeals to the gospel itself. Again, trying to let these Gentile believers, these new believers, these very green, unseasoned believers understand something so that they're not seduced by lies, so that they're not carried away by false winds of doctrine. That's outline A. So here's where I want to go with outline B. I want to build on this idea of faith. So I want to offer up a few considerations with regard to faith. And I think thinking this way will only serve a good purpose by having these considerations as a lens when we look at this text or when you look at any text on, on faith. So consideration number one, faith is the dominating theme of the soteriological narrative or the salvific narrative. And what I mean by that is this. Yes, gospel, redemption, all that stuff, but tied to all of that is faith, obviously. Right? Faith is absolutely tied to that. So I would say that faith is the dominating theme or at least one of the dominating themes of the entire soteriological narrative. Because it begins with Abraham, faith. Even Adam and Eve, you know, we understand that Adam and Eve, well, Adam and Eve had to believe. Adam and Eve, once they fell, I believe that they had to, they had to then believe. You know, I had to, that they had to trust God with their lives. And every since the fall, right? So everyone has, they're born, they're broken, they're separated. They have to trust. They have to place faith. Not necessarily understanding everything that's going to come to pass, but at least trusting God, especially for those in the Old Testament, maybe not knowing everything that's going to come around the horizon, maybe not understanding all the language, maybe not understanding all these things uh, that are prophesied, but they trust God. We on the we have the blessing and the privilege of hindsight. We look back and we see that 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 we have a risen Christ, and you know we express the same kind of faith, but faith in the things that have happened, faith in the things that are sure, faith in things that have come to pass. And so it's, it's, it's always been about faith, and it is one of the central and dominating themes of the entire redemptive narrative. Again, Hebrews 12 walks us, Hebrews 11 walks us through all of these in faith. It says, beginning right out of the gate, it says, For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain. Because of Noah's faith, he was preserved, it says. The list goes on and on to show that the common denominator or dominating theme for those who are blessed and in God are faith or is faith. So I would argue, and you could do it for a long time if you just walk through the text, that faith is one of the dominating themes of the entire 
redemptive narrative. But I would also argue this as a consideration. Faith is the salvific or saving gift bestowed onto those who could not otherwise arrive at it a belief on their own, which means everybody. Anybody in this room that has faith, anybody in this room that believes unto salvation, anybody, you didn't arrive at that on your own. Austin prayed this way just before I came up. You didn't arrive at that on your own. And this is why I say it's low-hanging fruit. I think this is a common understanding, or at least should be for people. So we don't arrive by faith on our own. We don't just wake up and say, eh, you know, I think, uh, I think I'll have this revolutionary encounter with Jesus on my time. You know, I think today's the day that I choose to believe that. I think if you're honest with yourself in conversations that you've had over the years with people that you're trying to see, believe, they just don't get it. You just don't, they just don't understand. Maybe you're born in a Christian family and, and, and your parents exemplified the gospel all of their life. They lived for Jesus. They did all that. But, but, but the kid just doesn't get it. Why? Why? Well, the gift of faith hasn't been given yet. But, but, but you've labored. You've made it clear. You've walked through. You've catechized your kids. You've gone through Big Truths for Young Hearts. You've done New City Catechism by Tim Keller. You've gone through all of these things. you prayed for them. You've walked through the Bible with them. No one has spent and invested as much time into your children with regards to the gospel as you. But for some of you, or for some... The light's just not coming on. And maybe the child goes into adulthood and then, and then into, uh, you know, into an old age and they just never connect. And you say, what in the world is going on? It's because it's not their, it's not their decision to make whether or not they're just going to accept all these things. Biblical saving faith is appropriated in these two ways. I would say unto salvation by grace you're saved through faith. And unto sanctification, walk by faith and not by sight. Same faith. For by grace you're saved through faith. It is the gift. God gifts us with this faith. It's his to give. Salvation is his to give. And we're talking about saving faith. Faith is his to give. He gives it. And, he, and then we become blessed. We become a part of that. We're no longer estranged to the covenants and, and, and promises as it talks about in Ephesians 2. But we're, but we're brought in. We're no longer secluded from that. We're, we're brought in. as We are grafted in. We become partakers in all of the covenants and promises, what, Ephesians, what Paul argues in Ephesians 2. And all of these things happen. So that's, that's salvation. Well, that's a faith that we have. We trust in God. We trust in all his promises. We trust in all of these things. We truly believe, believe unto life. Faith comes through hearing, hearing from what? The word of God or the words of Christ. And so now what carries us through this life by God's grace still is a deep and abiding faith. Walk by faith and not by sight. The Bible gives us its own definition, so we can just lean on that, I guess. <laughs> faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.21. Let me break that down for just a second. God must give us this. Listen, listen, to, listen to how they define it, and then let's see how we could ever, outside of God, as the active agent, arrive at something like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You see, when we think of hope, we think of these things a little bit differently. And let me explain what I mean by that. We pray for people who are sick. And we hope that God 
would heal them, right? We've been praying for several sick people with COVID stuff that aren't a part of this church or a part of this church or whatever for, for, for a while now. And our hope is that God would restore their health, right? Maybe you pray for that promotion. Maybe you pray for, you know, for your kid to get that good grade. Maybe, maybe you're, whatever it is that you're praying for. I mean, the sky's the limits. We don't know the future in that sense. We don't know how God's going to respond to that. You know, if I pray, oh, Lord, I pray that you let me live to be 165, you know, I, I can hope for that. But do I have assurance of that? No, absolutely not. Do we have assurance that on this earth, that those that are sick, that we pray for, that God's going to restore their physical health? No, we don't have assurance of that. What do we have assurance of? That God is good, that God is faithful, that God will do what's best. We have assurance in those things, so that's great. But the Bible uses a strange kind of amalgamation, a strange formula when it comes to faith and assurance. And it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So he lumps the two together, which is strange to us because we hope for things, but we don't necessarily have an assurance of that because to hope is, oh, well, I hope that happens. I can't say that it will, but I hope that it does. But it's quite different when it comes to the faith that's given to us by God himself. It's quite different. We hope for things, but we don't have absolute assurance that God will do all we hope for. Unless he's already revealed that he will do it in his word. However, in a salvific sense, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We can have full confidence that God, that God will do what he says. It also says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but faith is also the conviction of things not seen. How could we ever come to a point where we become convictional or settled in our hope and confidence in the things God promises that we cannot see if we are spiritually dead and blind? Faith changes that. Let me read that one more time. How could we ever come to the point where we become convictional or settled in our hope and confidence in the things God promises that we can't even see. Especially that we can't see because we are spiritually dead and blind. Without faith, these things are impossible, right? In our deadness, we don't hope. Not for these eternal things. That's not the way that that, that, that works. We, in, in, our, in our deadness, we don't even desire Jesus. In our deadness, we don't have faith. In our deadness, we not only would not believe the things of God, but we could not believe the things of God. And this is not the first time you've heard me say something like this. It won't be the last. I've probably said it 50 different times. But I want to come to this point because I want to just provide a lens to see here what Paul is walking through, just this, the significance of faith, that you've got to have it, but you can't on your own but that God is so good and so gracious to provide it as a gift because the natural man doesn't have these things. You know, 1 Corinthians 2.14, again, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A couple of things just in that text. Natural man, what do you think the natural man is? Someone who cannot comprehend the supernatural. Someone left to their own natural state. When we are born, we are born as natural men and women. David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. I'm born broken. I'm born a sinner. 
The natural person is like Nicodemus who comes out. He says, what must I do to be right? What must I do to inherit this life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And it was over his head. The natural man is the woman at the well that Jesus encountered. She goes, show me where this water is that I want after he explained uh, the goodness of himself. She goes, where's this water? You know, I, I don't want to thirst anymore. She's thinking naturally. She's thinking, well, where's this well, man? I'm, you know, bump this. I'm not going to this well anymore. I'm going to the one you're talking about. Because, you know, traveling all this way kind of stinks and being thirsty kind of stinks. And he's like, you missed it. Why? Because it's a natural mindset on natural things. And that mind does not accept. It rejects. But what's important to understand, it's not saying that it, not only does it not accept it. It's not just saying that it rejects. It's saying it can't accept and if you're like, okay, I see where you're going, but what's the context? So you proof texting this. Just understand that the context in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is telling the church in Corinth that he came to do for them nothing other than to preach Christ and him crucified. That's his message. So that's the backdrop for this verse about natural mind, natural person, rejecting these things, cannot, will not, all of this stuff. He's saying the gospel, the deepest and truest and most meaningful, I don't want to say most meaningful truth, all truth is meaningful truth, um, the truth of God, but, but this critical truth to life, to hope. They can't get it. They can't get it. They cannot get it. They reject it. It's not just that they reject it. They can't get it. It says because these things are spiritually discerned. You can't discern things that are only spiritually discernible without the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God. And the natural person most definitely does not have the Spirit of God. Another consideration. The simplicity of faith. A few more statements and I'll be done. I want to consider the simplicity of faith. Faith is simplistic in that you don't even have to come up with come up with it on your own. Faith is given to you. You don't have to come up with it. This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift, not of work so that no man may boast. It is a gift. God knows that you can't believe on your own. God knows that you're a natural person. God knows that you're broken. God knows that you're estranged. He knows that you're separated. He understands that. But God also knows that in order for you to come into any kind of knowledge of Him, any kind of saving knowledge, yet you have to have saving faith. And if you're going to have that, He's got to give that to you. And that's the gift that Paul mentions in Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you're saved through faith. It is a gift. What's the gift? Faith. Faith. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's it. Just believe. You can be right. You can be good. Just believe. Abraham didn't understand everything. He didn't see the future. He just trusted God. He questioned it a few times. You said that uh, it's going to be through, through my loins, through, through me? You're going to give me a son? You know, my, my wife's barren. How does that happen? He took matters into his own hands, right? God says, no, this is what I told you I'm going to do. All right, fine. I think sometimes we have an innate skepticism when it comes to blessings. And the offering is that you can have life because God wants to give it to you. Because God wants to give you faith. 
And he does that. He brings you to life. And you're like, whoa, whoa, but there's no transaction. Like, I didn't have to earn that. I have to do something for that. I think it's innate within us to be skeptic over blessings. Look, when my wife comes home and the house is spotless, super clean, I mean, more than, more than I normally do. I mean, when you come in and, and, you, and you smell some pledge, some lemon pledge, and you're like, man, I could lick the floor, man. This is pretty good. You know, my wife's, my wife, the first word out of my wife's mouth is not, thank you, honey. It's like, what are you up to? You know? You know, you know what, 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 what do you want or what did you do? You know, and that's, come on, give me some credit, you know, but that's usually the, I mean, I know what that says about me, that, you know, if I would do those things more often or if that would, what I do all the time, she wouldn't be so suspicious. But she's skeptical sometimes when she comes into a blessing like that. What is going on? I think sometimes we approach things like that. And we have to be very careful that we don't approach faith and salvation like that, as in, it can't be something for nothing. It can't be just that simple. That's why I say the simplicity of faith. Is there a requirement? Is there something expected of you in your life? Is there a byproduct of faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm saying you coming to life is purely, purely the grace of God. Alone. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, of the prince of the power of the air, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he says, but, but God, being rich in mercy because of, his, because of his kindness, because of his love, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God so that no man may boast. It's not of works. The point is, you didn't do it. God applied it. Last thing, faith is not given to man so that man may boast, but that God may be glorified. Let me say it in this, in this way. Our faith is the display of God's prevenient grace. When we go to Hebrews and we read of the faith of Moses and the faith of Noah and the faith of Abraham, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying, now read this so that it points you to the grace of God. It's not so that we build an altar and worship Noah or we build an altar and worship Moses. It's so that we worship Yahweh, so that we worship God and His grace and His goodness. Because that's what's on display when we see the faith in each other. I look at Antoine, as great as that brother is, and I have to, have to believe that, man, if it wasn't for the grace of God, the conversations that Antoine and I have would be completely different. You know? I, I like to use Antoine as an example. It's been years since I've said this. If I can remember, you know, Antoine was in a different lifestyle. Um, you know, some, some, some gang-type affiliations, you know. Uh, and I made a joke one time. I said he went from slinging dope to making soap. I mean, that's what he did. He makes soaps and lotions now, you know. So <laughs> massive change. And I'm like, that's awesome. And if I, and if I, and I, but, but if, you know, when the dust settles, we're like, man, that's so cool. That's so great. And we get real sober-minded. We're like, that's the grace of God. That is, that is God who's done that. When we consider the heroes mentioned in Hebrews or the heroes that are in this room that you might look at as a hero of faith to you, it should say more about God than any of those heroes mentioned. So let's finish with this text, with this application. I think the response to this is threefold. I think one is the response is to praise God for faith. I think the response is worship. Praise God for
for a faith that wasn't yours. Praise God for a faith that you were not looking for, that you couldn't conjure up, but that God in his infinite mercy, because of his kindness and compassion, made us alive together with Jesus. And he did so by giving faith. But when is the last time your worship or your prayers were centered on God's grace and giving you faith? When was the last time you did that? That you worship God not just for what you believe, but the, for the fact that you believe it all. When's the last time you worship God for that? That you got real quiet and said, I wouldn't be worshiping you, period, if it wasn't for you. I think another response to this is to pray for continued faith. You only need to live for about 10 minutes as a Christian before your faith can be shaken. Before you see something that's like, what? And then it's really important that you dig deep into your theology and get on track. The disciples struggled in their belief at first. Why, why would it be so far-fetched to consider that our faith may struggle from time to time as well? That's why a robust theology absolutely matters. And the final way that I think this applies is this. I think the response is to be in labor, or to labor, I should say, to labor for the faith of others. And how do we do this? We do this first through prayer and through the gospel. You may say, Alan, you're reformed. Doesn't that mean that you believe that God has already decreed all things that we will that will come to pass and we cannot change things? Absolutely, that's what I what I believe. But I believe that God's sovereign decree is absolutely intertwined with the prayers of the saints. I do believe that. Otherwise, I'd walk away thinking, well, what's the point in praying? And then I have to wrestle with the fact that I'm commanded to do it. And then I have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus did it, and the apostles did it, and so many others did it. So I can't abandon prayer just because I'm reformed. No. That's how God works sovereignly. That's how God works through the saints with his sovereign decrees. And then the gospel. Scripture says there's salvation in no one else, for there is no one, no name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And that name is Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no gospel. Without the gospel, there is no faith. Because faith and the gospel are also absolutely interconnected. And so I pray that we would consider these things. And look at the heart of these few verses and realize that Paul is driving the point that faith is absolutely critical. I think that's pretty low-hanging fruit to such a degree that sometimes I think we overlook it or treat it lightly or maybe lose perspective and appreciation for the faith that was given to us. Because not a single one of us would want anything to do with God if it were not for God himself. And that alone is a reason to spend our eternity worshiping Him. Let's pray together and you can be dismissed. Lord, I do pray that although this, this outline was a little different for me, um, and quite honestly, not the easiest to get through for some reason today, but I do pray that you would cause your truth to land in a way that we need it to, or that you would cause it to sift through 
areas of our lives, our minds, Lord, and that you would make that kind of direct application. Lord, I thank you for faith. I do believe that that that's what Ephesians talks about. I do believe that faith is, is the gift. I do believe that's how to interpret that. Lord, if I'm wrong, I pray that you'd show me. Lord, I'm going to preach it that way and, and, and until you do show me otherwise. I pray that you'd give me the spirit of humility that I need to, to, to receive correction if I need it. But Lord, as it stands, I do believe that faith is the gift. And I do believe that I would never have it. I do believe in my deadness I couldn't. So I thank you for faith. I thank you for life. I thank you for regeneration. Lord, I thank you for the justifying work of Jesus, that I might be declared righteous and stand righteous in your sight. Not that I'm good enough myself, but I have righteousness applied to me. I thank you for faith. Lord, I pray that you would sustain mine. I pray that others would not shipwreck theirs. Lord, that we would live for you and that our faith would both be something that has brought us to this point of salvation along with justification, regeneration, and all of that, but that it would also carry us through, that we might walk by it and not by our sight. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.